Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're uh, about to finish this series on walking in holiness. The greater picture of what we've been looking at over the last many, many weeks is putting on the new you. We've looked at a variety of ways in which we are to put on the new you. We're challenged to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling with which we have been called, a call to adoption as the sons and the daughters of the Most High God requires that we would walk in holiness. We are called to walk in unity by preserving what God has created for us in our fellowship with one another. He has already created unity. We are to walk in unity by preserving that. We are to walk separate and distinct from the world, exhibiting the Christian virtues that make us different from and directly distinct to what we would see in the world. We've been challenged to walk in love, loving one another, in a way that imitates the love that God has for us. And we were challenged last week to walk as light, displaying God's holiness and His righteousness. And today we look at what it means to walk in wisdom. And so a part of walking in wisdom is in the greater picture of us walking in the new you and walking in a way that is that exemplifies the holiness of God Himself. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 Through 21, follow along with me as I read. The Word of God says to us, Therefore, based upon what He has said previously, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let's pray very briefly. Father, we acknowledge that your word is holy and authoritative. It is inerrant and fallible. It is eternal that comes from your very heart. And Father, how we need to let your word speak to us today. God, would you help us to set aside preconceived ideas? Would you help us to set aside willful rebellion? Would you help us to allow your word to speak to the depth of our need and recognizing what it means to walk in wisdom? We pray that you be glorified in the teaching of your word and in the way that we apply it through our everyday living. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage has but a single command in it. And that command is very simply to live wisely. Verse 15 begins, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. Now, word careful means to look. It means to look closely. It means to examine carefully. So if you envision what it means to look when you're out on the roadways, you come to a stop sign or a traffic light. And before you go across that intersection, you're going to look And you're going to look, and you're going to look again. Don't you do that? We teach our kids to look both ways before crossing the street. Why? Because there's danger all around. So this idea here is that we are to look carefully at the way that we are living our lives, the direction our life is taking, so that we would live it as wise men, not as unwise. That word unwise biblically simply means a fool. To live as unwise men is to live as a fool. And so what we're going to see here is a contrast of two lifestyles, the life of the wise and the life of the unwise. Now what we need to recognize at the beginning 
is that the fool is not unintelligent. The fool is simply irresponsible in how he lives his life. Now, you have lost people who live as fools because they have rejected the truth. They have discarded the reality of who God is. But it is not uncommon for Christians who know the truth to still live as fools by not applying the truth of God's word to their lives and allowing it to direct how they are going to live their lives. Now, in our passage today, there's not a lot that explains a wise and an unwise life. And so I'm going to take some time to develop those out from the rest of Scripture. So we're going to look at four marks of a foolish life. The first mark of a foolish life is a fool lives apart from God. Now, as you think about that reality, living a life apart from God, there's two ways that we would apply this to ourselves. Number one, letter A, is actual atheism. Actual atheism denies the very existence of God. We would read in Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so you see through Proverbs this idea of a wise and an unwise life contrasted against who God is and how we are to respond to Him. And we also see this in parts of the psalm. So the fool will say in his heart, there is no God. And so one way that we can do that is through actual atheism. Now this might surprise you, but it is estimated that worldwide there is only about 2.5% of the world's population that actually denies the existence of God. Think about that. In the whole world, it's estimated that only 2.5% of the people deny the existence of God. Now, you think about how that applies to our culture today here in America, and you would think that atheism dominates, wouldn't you? Because of the way we have to accommodate those who don't believe in God. In the 1960s, when God was removed from the public square in the schools, and prayer was taken away, and Bible reading was taken away, and the Ten Commandments were being taken away. So you would think that in America, that 90% of Americans are actual atheists, but in fact, the worldwide population is only around 2.5%. Worldwide, only about 12% of the people would say that they are not religious in some form or fashion. So there is this reality that the vast majority of the world's population believes in some kind of a deity. So the fool lives apart from God in actual atheism, and letter B, there's also practical atheism. It isn't denying the existence of God. It is simply denying the rule of God. It is acknowledging that He is, but living our lives in such a way as if He is uninterested, as if He isn't watching, as if He is completely unconcerned with what we do. We see this expressed in Romans chapter 1. We read together, For even though they knew God, and that is an intellectual understanding, not a relationship, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now see, as Christians, as those who profess to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, as those who have been adopted into the family of God and would proclaim by our words that we honor Him and believe in Him and want to follow Him, we need to be careful that we don't live our lives as practical atheists, thinking that what we do doesn't matter to God. Thinking that how we live bears no reflection on who He is. But instead we are to live as if He actually rules every part of our life. So a fool lives his life apart from God. Number two 
a fool becomes his own God. Now this is not in the sense of the worship of self, but the reality is this, is that everyone lives with some kind of a God. Something that will dominate who they are, how they live, what they think, what they do. We will worship something. We have been wired to worship. And even though the vast majority of the population acknowledges God, and that small percentage doesn't acknowledge Him, even those who don't acknowledge God still have something that will rule and dominate over their life. We read in Proverbs chapter 12, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And so what likely happens is that even though they don't believe in God, they set themselves up to determine what is right for themselves. Even though they ascribe to believe and to follow a God, they still determine for themselves, even with a formal set of beliefs, what I will and what I won't do, how far I will go, where the limits have been drawn in my life. So a fool becomes his own God by ruling his own life and determining for himself what is true. Number three, a fool mocks sin. Proverbs 14.9 very simply says, fools mock at sin. They look at what's taking place in the world and it's humorous to them. It's enjoyable to them. They don't see anything wrong with what takes place. They stand opposed to those who would try to instill some kind of an absolute value, some kind of absolute truth into our stream of consciousness. But a fool is actually going to mock sin, determining his own truth, determining for himself what is right and what is wrong, and in doing that will be able to justify his own behavior because he has set himself up to be his own God. Number four, a fool will not only mock sin, but he will also spread his sin. Proverbs 15.2 says, The mouth of fools spouts folly. So he will share his beliefs generously. He will encourage others to participate in those activities that might be considered sinful in the Bible, but he himself is not considered to be sinful because he has established his own truth. So we see this in our culture all over the place where people are drawn into an area of sin by others who want to liberally, liberally share this self-ruled life with those who are ascribing to some other value. So we see the life of the fool. In contrast to that, we see the life of the wise. There are six marks of the wise life. And number one is the wise fear the Lord. Now, being wise doesn't mean that you have all of the answers. It doesn't mean that you're super smart compared to the general population. But the beginning of wisdom is a fear of the Lord, which is what Proverbs 1.7 says. The fear of the Lord is a beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We read in 1 Peter 1.17, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. So the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And that is, that is not intrepidation. It is a reverence. It is recognizing that the supreme deity is greater than I that rules over me. And I am to live my life in subjection and in submission to him. It is recognizing this supreme position of God, who he is, what he desires, and what it is that actually the second mark of the wise is the wise acknowledge the Lord. It's more than an intellectual 
recognition. It's not a courteous tip of the hat, but it is a commitment of our life to Him. And it is in that sense that we truly acknowledge the reality of who God is. In the book of Acts, when Peter preached his first sermon through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he explained to the people who Jesus was and how he fulfilled all of the prophecies of the foretold Messiah, he ends his message with these words in chapter 36, in verse, verse 36 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter, to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? You see, they had an intellectual understanding of who God was, but they didn't have an actual commitment to the truth of who God was as it was expressed and fulfilled in the life and person of Jesus Christ. So in verse 38, Peter says to them, Repent each of you and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So acknowledging the Lord begins in salvation. It is all about our relationship with Him and acknowledging who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and receiving Him as both Lord and Savior. And in that acknowledgement, we make a very specific commitment to live our lives for Him. Now, number three flows directly out of this. Number three, the wise obey the Lord. You see, there's a great challenge in our modern church culture is to embrace Jesus as my Savior, but not necessarily as my Lord. I still want to reserve the right to live my life as I desire, as I see fit. But you see, that isn't truly acknowledging who He is, and it certainly is not consistent with obeying the Lord. We read in Psalm 112, Praise the Lord, how blessed is the man who fears the Lord, has that reverent awe for the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. I want you to ask yourself this question. When I hear commandments, when I read commandments, instruction in the Bible, what is my response to that? What is my reaction to that? Is it, man, will this list ever end? Is it, that's too difficult? That's too intrusive? It's too inconvenient? How do we receive the instruction of the Lord. Well, the psalmist tells us that we are to delight in His commandments. Why? Because we know that God loves us. We know that God desires the best for us. We know that God knows how to provide what is best for us. We don't know how to do that. We think we know how to do that. And many will spend a lot of their lives trying to fill their lives with these seemingly good things. But in the end, God knows... And we are to delight in following the instruction that God gives to us through his words. Psalm 119 continues to say, How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart, who seek him with all their heart. So wisdom isn't about knowing a lot. Wisdom is about doing what we know. So you can be wise even though you're a young Christian. You're wise because you do what you know to do. When we obey what we know, then we are walking in wisdom. And I'll be very honest with you. There's a lot of truth that I know about the Bible, 
about who God is and about what God wants for me. But I don't always obey. When I choose not to obey, I no longer am walking in wisdom, but I'm walking as if God doesn't exist. We are to obey what we know. And the more we obey what we know, the more that God will unfold to us who he really is. The great splendor and majesty that is him. The more we obey, the more we sense his presence. We experience his joy and his peace. The more we find fulfillment in his purposes. But when we choose to live as an unwise and not obey the Lord, then we short circuit and in a sense we forfeit the blessing of walking intimately with the Lord. Number four, the wise grow in their understanding, as we talked about in weeks past. Ephesians 5, 9 and 10, excuse me, last week. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So growing in our understanding is growing in our Lordship. There's so much that we know to do. There's so much that we are doing. And the wise man is going to grow not only in their understanding, but in the application of what God has revealed to them. It is growing in lordship. Number five, the wise prioritize their life. At this point, we rejoin the passage of Scripture as I believe we now begin to see what it means to prioritize our life. So looking back at Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 16, here's what we read again. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So the wise man is going to prioritize his life knowing that the world that we live in, the era that we live in, is actually an evil era. Now it does not mean that the days specifically are evil, but the days are filled with all kinds of evil. Isn't it shocking how evil this world has become? Isn't it amazing how atrocious the sin we see paraded publicly and committed in acts of violence against one another? The days are filled with all kinds of evil. So the wise man recognizes the evil era that we live in and prioritizes his life against those things. So it is making the most of our time, not in enjoying by seeking all kinds of pleasure and filling our lives with all kinds of meaningless activities because we find it to be fun, but it means living in light of the reality of who God is and what he wants for us. It is investing ourselves in God's purposes. It is understanding why we have been saved. It is understanding what God has uniquely gifted and equipped me to do. And it is prioritizing that service to him that marks a wise prioritization of our lives. Not just pursuing the blessings, not just pursuing pleasure, but pursuing the fulfillment of God's purposes for us. You see, the fool says, eat Drink and be buried because tomorrow you may die. The wise man says, each day is a gift from God and I should use it for his glory. Time here is not clock time. 
It's not the hands spinning around a dial. But time here is a recognition that the time that we have been given is fixed. There is a number of days that you and I have been given by the sovereign rule of God in our lives. And when our time is up, our time is up. We can't do anything to add one more day to our life. Now, there's a lot of things that we can do that will maximize the fulfillment of our days, eating right, exercising, taking care of ourselves. Because our days are allocated doesn't mean that you can just go jump out of an airplane without a parachute because God's going to save you. It doesn't mean that at all. But what we recognize is that because we have a fixed amount of time, that we are to live our lives in light of what God has saved us to do. There is an end point to our lives. Therefore, we are to live righteously and godly. We are to witness and share Christ with others. We are to invest in family and in friends. We are to serve God and we are to serve his people. That's what a wise man does. A wise man prioritizes his life around the purposes of God. Number six, the wise will pursue God's will. So we find here in a very generous, very general way what the will of God is. Verse 17 so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, you and I have a very specific will for our life, and that's not what Paul is trying to explain. That's not what this passage is about. There are very specific things that God has equipped us to do and has called us to do, and I couldn't begin to articulate those for you. But I'll tell you this, we will never know the specific will of God unless we are faithful to the general will of God. The general of God is simply found in his word. It is experienced through prayer and submission and commitment and service to him. But what we find here in our passage is that the general will of God is that you and I be under his control. Verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. So the will of God is that his children would be completely under his, under his control. So an example of this contrast between a wise and a foolish, we see this example of drunkenness. And so there is a certain amount of control that alcohol will influence in our lives. There's a certain amount of effect that it's going to have upon us, and this is a contrast that Paul is undertaking here. So it isn't just that alcohol can be a controlling factor in our lives, because actually... There are many things that could be a controlling factor in our life. It could be food. It could be travel. It could be leisure. It could be pleasure. It could be work. It could be popularity. It could be possessions. There's any number of things that could control us and have so much influence in our lives that the things of God and the person of God don't come anywhere near to this other thing that is dominating our lives. So it is the things that control us to an equal or greater degree than God does. What are those things in our lives? This is what I think is being articulated here as a contrast between the wise and the unwise. And here is the specific example of wine. So the instruction here is do not get drunk with wine. So drinking wine in biblical times was necessary due to the fact that drinking water was not pure, it was not safe. And so what they would often have to do 
is they would have to dilute their water with a certain amount of wine to purify it so that it would prevent digestive problems. You know, the drinking water, clean drinking water, is still an issue in our world today. There are many, many agencies and there are some ministries that endeavor to create clean drinking water in parts of the country that don't have what we take for granted, and that is water that you can drink right out of the tap and not make you sick. So wine is used as a purifying agent, but when you were diluting your wine, it was very easy to under-dilute it, under-dilute your water. So in doing that, rather than maybe a 10% dilution of wine to water, you can do 50% or 70%. And so what would be what would happen is that by hydrating with this under-diluted water, over-diluted water, you would actually get drunk. And so the prohibition here isn't against drinking, but it's against getting drunk on wine. So every picture of drunkenness in the Bible is a picture of sin and disaster. I think that's one of the reasons that this specific example is used here. So the word here is dissipation. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. That word means to be wasteful or to live riotous. And it's kind of a difficult word. It's not used a lot in the New Testament. And where we see it used most obviously is in the illustration of the prodigal son. When he had received his inheritance, he went off and squandered it in loose living. And so that's the example is that he lived his life in a wasteful way. He lived his life with what we would call riotous activity. So drunkenness is associated with letter A, a life of ruin. We turn to the Proverbs again in 23, verses 19 to 21. It says, Listen, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Do not be heavy, excuse me, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine, or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe one with wrath. You know, as I thought about that, as I read this, it reminds me of when we drive down what we would, what we would call skid road. And you see the lives that have been completely wrecked by the impact of alcohol. You see the lives of celebrities and famous athletes whose lives are derailed by alcohol. So being drunk, giving over to drunkenness is associated with the life of ruin. Let it be, it's associated with indecent acts. We look at the book of Galatians and we read these words. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. And so what we can do in our culture today is we can say, well, you know, drunkenness really isn't as bad as some of these other things, but when we look at Scripture, it is partnered with these other things that we, we would consider to be indecent acts. Letter C, drunkenness is associated with the former life. Not a life that is consecrated to God, but a life that is trying to be lived in the old way. We read this in 1 Peter 4.3. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Again, 
drunkenness is associated with the life of those who are outside of Christ, who are not a part of the covenant, who have not embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now, Paul's primary concern here is spiritual, not moral. He's contrasting the wise and the unwise, and he's explaining that the wise prioritize their lives, and the unwise give themselves over to drunkenness, which is associated with all kinds of things that are not to be true of the believer. So instead of getting drunk, instead of being affected by and influenced by alcohol, we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So to be filled with the Holy Spirit, there is a contrast here in the spiritual context here. Filled means to keep on being filled, literally. In the Greek it means be being filled. So rather than being controlled by something, like in this example, wine, which can bring destruction and devastation, we are to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are yielded to Him and live a life of submission before Him, when we obey Him, then we will take on His character and we will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to make a distinction here. When we are saved, we are filled with the Holy Spirit in the sense that we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have been given all of the Holy Spirit we're ever going to receive. He indwells us. We have been sealed in Him. He now resides within us spiritually. But this being filled with the Holy Spirit is different. It isn't an ecstatic language. It isn't a second experience. It is very simply the reality of a life that is now lived under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit itself. So here's what it practically means. Number one, it means to be moved along by the Holy Spirit. It's kind of like a sailboat that's out there on the water. And it's got this great big sail up. And the wind is filling the sail. And that boat is being moved along by the power, by the impact of that wind. So it is our lives being moved along by the presence and the ruling dominance of God in our life. Number two, it is to be flavored by. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be flavored by the Spirit. The greatest example of this is the way salt was used in biblical times. Salt was used to permeate the meat. It flavored it and it also preserved it. You think about it like this. If you go stand in a suit of clothing in an old, musty closet, and six months or six years later, you take that out, that odor has permeated that clothing, right? That coat has now been flavored by the fragrance of that room. And that's kind of the idea here, is that our lives are to be seasoned by, to be flavored by the rule of the Holy Spirit in our life. Number three, to be filled means to be dominated by the Holy Spirit. We can be dominated by any number of things, sorrow and anger and fear and jealousy, but here we are to be dominated by the Holy Spirit. We are not to live our lives under our own control. We are not to live our lives under the dominating influence of something or someone else, but we are to live under the control 
of the Holy Spirit. Now, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be dominated by Him, it's accomplished, what I believe, in three specific ways. It is not accidental that these things happen. It is intentional. Letter A. We are to repent from our sin. To be controlled by the Holy Spirit means there is a consistent and a continual confession and repentance of sin. We don't confess our sin just so that God wipes the slate clean. We don't just confess our sin so that we feel better about our walk with the Lord. But we confess our sin to acknowledge that it is wrong, that it is an affront to God, that it separates us from fellowship with Him. And the right response after confession is to repent. It is to turn away from that thing that is displeasing to God. If we aren't doing that, we will not be dominated by the Holy Spirit. You'll still be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but you will not be dominated by Him. Letter B, we are to surrender our will. I believe that we surrender our will through a prayer-filled submission and commitment to Him. It is giving our lives to Him. It is living our lives for Him. It is giving to Him our time and our talents, our resources. It is submitting our desires, our preferences, to his lordship. Let us see. It is consciousness of his presence. We are to live our lives in such a way as if Jesus is standing right next to us. Oh, by the way, he is. Think about it like this. As a kid, there are often things that we would do that we wouldn't do in the presence of our parent. Isn't that right? You're out with a group. You're off at a movie. You're cruising in a car, whatever it might be. There's things as employees that we would not do if the supervisor or the boss was standing right over our shoulder. Isn't that right? And so that's the idea, is that we live in a consistent consciousness of his presence, as if he is right there with you. I wonder how differently our lives might look if we lived in a constant consciousness of His presence. Well, to confess and repent, to submit, and to live in an awareness of who He is enables us to be controlled by and dominated by Him as opposed to being controlled by and dominated by by other things. Now, let's look at the results of what a spirit-dominated life looks like. Number one, there is a worshipful spirit. Verse 19 reads like this, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. It is this picture of there being this internal worship of the Lord that dominates the conversations that we have with one another. As opposed to being filled with anger and malice and envy and wrath, our words are filled with things that would be considered consistent with the worship of the Lord. 
So we are to speak with one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And this is a comprehensive way of expressing that the words that we use with one another are the same kinds of words that we, do, we would use in our worship to God. We are to offer praise to God in our worship of Him. We are to offer words of praise to one another, words that edify and build up and encourage one another instead of, as we've looked at in previous weeks, the silly talk and the coarse jesting and the filthiness, the unwholesome words that are so easy to fill our lives with. So using these words together, they form a comprehensive description of music that is used in worship. And that is what is to to be evident in our life is a life that is singing to the Lord with joy in our hearts. Have you ever been been with someone who just has joy in their heart? They're constantly singing to the Lord. You say there's something about that individual that's different. They're always happy. They're always upbeat. They're always humming some kind of a song. Isn't that right? If you look out in worship services, you see people who are singing with a heart of worship to the Lord. And then you see other people who are barely moving their lips. And when you see that contrast, it's natural, natural for me to wonder, are they really worshiping the Lord through these songs? Or is their heart far from Him? Have you heard people bellow out the words to these songs and they can't carry it to their bucket? And they have no shame in letting you know that they're worshiping the Lord? Well, I've got a parody that's not here. It's a running joke, isn't it? You always know a parody is a worship service. Because, brother, he's worshiping God from his heart. His life is filled with this song, with this worship to the Lord. And this is... This is what is to be indicative of being filled with the Spirit, is we have this internal joy, this heart that is focused on the Lord, and it just flows in a worship of Him. In this contrast between the wise and the unwise, and our lives, our, our words being filled with the seasoning of the Holy Spirit, contrasting that with what someone would say when they're being dominated or controlled by something else. Have you ever said something in a fit of anger because you were so controlled by that anger? We've seen this in recent months of of famous people who are drunk and spout all kinds of things they wouldn't ordinarily say. And it's because they're speaking from what is dominating and controlling them. Someone under the influence of the Holy Spirit will speak words that are pleasing to God and beneficial to those who hear those words. And so we speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number two, the result is a thankful spirit. Not only a worshipful spirit, but a thankful spirit. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God even the Father. And that's one of those verses that we need to underline and memorize is that we are always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What I believe that means is that through all things and in all things 
we recognize the sovereign rule of God in our life. So we're thankful to God for our salvation. We're thankful to God for the multitude of blessings that he has given to us. We're thankful for our future glorification. We're thankful for his constant presence in our life. We're even thankful for the difficult circumstances that reinforce our need for him and bring about spiritual growth in our life. Let me tell you something. When we are acknowledging the sovereignty of God in our life, the difficulties that we face will crush our spirits because they are so overwhelming, because they are so unmanageable, because they are so unwelcomed that apart from a right connection to God, we will be crushed. We had dinner last night, and we got to know Bill and Sharon a little bit better, and, and they shared with us the journey that they have been on the last several years. I, I don't think they'll mind me sharing with this, this story with you, but uh, about five years ago, Bill was diagnosed with stage 4 geoblastoma. And if you know anything about brain cancer, the survival rate's not very good. And so they began to talk about the journey that God had brought them on. And Bill was, given, Bill was given an expectancy of around 15 to 18 months. And five years later, he's still walking with the Lord, praising the Lord, living under the sovereign will and rule of the Lord. But I can promise you, and they said as much last night, that apart from recognizing who God was, this story would have been vastly different. You see, we can't deal with it on our own. And by recognizing the sovereign rule, by having the ability to give thanks to God for all things, we're able to enjoy His presence and experience His joy and His peace regardless of what we experience in our lives. Thirdly, the result of walking in the Spirit is a, is a submissive spirit. Verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. This is putting others above ourselves. It is giving giving others preference over ourselves. It is serving and sacrificing others because we are a part of the same body. We'll talk more about this over the next several weeks as we look at the relationship between husband and wife, children and parents, employee and employer. When we look at the submissive goal that we are to have in our lives, I'll tell you this. All of us reject authority, don't we? It's a constant battle in our life is to reject authority because we want to rule our own life. And so we'll explore that a little bit greater in the weeks ahead. But the result of the Spirit dominating and controlling our life is a life that is filled with worship. It's a life that is filled with thanks. It's a life that is filled with mutual submission to the Lord and to one another. There's a great contrast in walking in wisdom and walking as a fool. And again, it's not how much we know, it's what we're doing with what we know. And all of us are going to fascinate between wise living and foolish living. right response is God reveals to us that our foolishness is to confess and have a sin. 